I'll be frank. We're all business owners here. We're all solopreneurs. Everything we do should have a business goal at the end of it. So it has to be paid or it has to lead me to new clients because it would just take away time from the things that are helping me survive. (laughs) Hey, everybody. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to the Indie Rails. Today, I'm excited to announce that we have Joe Mazzalotti on the episode. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hey, everyone. Great to be here. Super excited to talk about all the stuff in the, you know, Rails indie space. Very excited about this podcast. Listen to the, I guess, the pilot, if you want to call it, on my walk yesterday. So really excited to be a part of it. Yeah, Joe, I think it's only fitting that you're our first guest you were one of the first ones to reach out to us and congratulate the launch of the show. And I think that just echoes your sentiment in our ecosystem, in the Ruby industry. So I thought we would start with, you're a pretty well-known guy in the industry and you've been on several podcasts. Your bio is pretty well-known, I think, by most people. But for those that are new to the show or new to you, I wanted to give like a quick high-level overview and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. So I know you from the Turbo Native guy and then most recently Rails Dev. I heard a little bit about your journey and your history that you started learning to code in college and you did that like on a thesis or some project. And I think I can resonate with that because it was very similar with me in college. I just started coding on the side and I just couldn't stop. I had to figure it out and learn more about it. And eventually it became a full-time job. And so you said that you got a job right out of college, right? And did you go to work at Pivotal Labs? So I got a job right out of college for a huge bank. I didn't start at Labs until like two years after that. I was doing just the absolute mess of JavaScript development at this bank for two years. This isn't even like, oh, it was React a mess. It was spaghetti code a mess. It powered an entire front end from a JSON endpoint and just... I almost stopped coding. It was so bad of an experience and started doing iOS on the side, kind of my free time there on the commute and stuff. And then Pivotal Labs popped up on Stack Overflow and was like, oh, that sounds cool. Had no idea what I was getting into. Absolutely zero idea. Didn't know what even pairing programming was. And was at Labs for like just a little over two years before I left to go to a smaller kind of startup and really find my home in the Turbo Native space. How did you get that job at Pivotal Labs? Was it just I applied and got an interview or did you know some people? Stack Overflow Careers. I blindly applied, sent in my resume. I wasn't even like actively looking. I was just very curious about what a consultant type company would be. People that value code quality over just like getting crap done. And yeah, my day one interview with Mike D'Alessio was we pair programmed on how to test drive an array with Ruby. I had never pair programmed in my life. I had never TDD'd in my life. And I had never written a line of Ruby in my life. So <laughs> it was quite the experience. But I must have made a good impression. Came back you know, two days later for an eight-hour pairing interview and was working there within like a month or something. It was pretty quick. Yeah, I can imagine that was pretty nerve-wracking. A lot of us developers have the imposter syndrome. And I'm sure you were one to display more than what you knew, but you had to go in and just be yourself, right? And that's the best advice. Yeah, yeah. I've talked to Mike about it a few times. And one of the things that they always look for in that pairing interview is not, does this person know Ruby? Does this person know TDD? Because that's the kind of stuff you can pick up on the job. It was way more of, can they communicate their ideas clearly? Can they work through 
coding adversary? Like what happens when they're up against the wall? Do they give up? Do they shut down? Or do they talk to their pair and they try to figure things out together? And it was those type of skills that got my foot in the door. Forever grateful to Mike and the team at Labs there to letting me do that. Like I was straight up a junior dev who knew nothing. And I was just able to show a little bit of empathy, a little bit of compassion towards some code. And that really kickstarted my career in, in this space about, what, 10 years ago now. So you were there, you said about five years? I was at Labs for two years and left to work at a tiny startup. I was like number four, was there for like five years doing the Rails app, the iOS app, and the Android app. Got started with Turbo Links at the time, Turbo Native. Rails, God, we were on like Rails 4, I think, went through a Rails 5 upgrade, went through a Rails... No, Rails 2, because we went through a Rails 3 upgrade, then a 4 upgrade, then a 5 upgrade. It was insane. And then was like the only developer there. It was me and the CEO who was like half time on it. So kind of got thrown into the fire, just like managing everything, was doing ops, was doing Heroku management, customer support, everything at all that touched code was on me. That sounds like an indie dev. Yeah, it really was. It taught me a ton. And I was so close to the business, only being four people for the first two years, that a lot of the decisions were, hey, let's get the whole company in a room and talk about it. What do we want to build next? What market are we trying to capture next? And we grew to nine really quickly. And then a competitor came into the space and ate a lot of our lunch. (laughs) And we downsized to seven to six, back to five. And then about three years ago, I was let go. They downsized to just three people now. The CEO, the co-founder's gone, and like a marketing person and a sales and a support person, just the three of them. And that was really when I was given the opportunity to take a look at this indie life and see what I could do when I had the freedom. I had a two months of severance. I had health insurance for like three months. Didn't have any kids yet. <laughs> it was a good time to experiment. And that's how I got into doing stuff on my own, consulting, you know, that type of work back then. What a great opportunity. A lot of people have to kind of make that decision to jump ship and risk a lot. And you don't have the severance or the time or all the pieces fall into place. But that was seems like it was a really good opportunity for you to take that initiative and give it a go. Yeah. Grateful that I got let go. And, you know, in hindsight, at the time, I wasn't too happy, but it really gave me a kick to try something on my own. I had already been remote for a few years. So going on my own and not having an office to go to wasn't very new. But what really saved me was that I already had a client for like over two years at that point. I was building their Turbo Native app, still Turbo Links at the time, their Android app as well, iOS and Android. And it was just an hourly thing. Like they needed help. I pop in for a couple hours a week. I kept it under five hours a week, but it was enough to know that my services would be valued. Yeah. And that was a little bit of income, right? To make things a little more comfortable. Totally. Yeah. I knew that I had two months of runway on severance. And then I really needed to land a second client. And no, that was not enough time, but it at least let me know that I could find people to work with. And that's kind of where I was like, okay, this is a really good opportunity. Let's try this Turbo Native thing. Let's dive in. Let's see how it works. I was way more of an iOS developer, like branded myself as an iOS developer three years ago, and only really recently came into the Rails space maybe two years ago, which is kind of crazy to think because like I live and breathe these days. Looking back, would you recommend a longer time frame? Like you had this two month runway. Mm-hmm. Is there a runway that you would tell people like, hey, this is how much you would need to kind of get into at least client services? I think that if you're starting from zero, 
Yeah. You need six months minimum. Starting from zero clients, zero where you don't even know what you want to offer, like what your services are, that you can just decide pretty quickly and you can always pivot from. The hardest part is building your pipeline, at least for me. Even now, I struggle sometimes to build pipeline in a way that is manageable. Three months ago, I had zero pipeline. I had no one to work with. I was scrambling to find clients. And now I have two people that want to start on March 1st, and I have to decide which one to work with because I can't work with both of them because I'm already full. Dealing with that wave is really hard. And getting that kind of flywheel spinning takes a really long time. There's a lot of different ways to do it. I'm definitely one for doing things in public and being very, you know, blogging and videos and podcasts like this to get my name out there. But there are a ton of other opportunities that are maybe faster. This works for me. I'm excited about it. You know, it fills my cup to talk about this kind of stuff. So I enjoy it. And I'm okay with that slower kind of burn, the more SEO strategy. Like you said it now, and in six months, one year, you'll kind of reap your rewards. But I definitely recommend that, like, if you're starting from zero, six months minimum, and if you can find that first client, even if you're locked into like, well, we have an agreement signed before you leave your company to go on your own, before you leave your full-time, yeah, it's going to help with hard work. Because that was really what jump-started me into going on my own. If I didn't have that, I would have been at zero. Now, at least I could have one testimonial on my website. I could have one app to point to in the app store that's like, hey, I did this. Do you want to do one as well? I had one referral outside of my full-time job. So that goes a long way. It's the zero to one problem, right? The first customer is the hardest. The first client is just as hard. So how long were you going at it alone before you started to realize like, hey, I can really make this work? Was it really kind of right at the beginning or did it take a few months before things were settling in? I don't remember it. But within the first year, I had secured you know enough clients to get my income back to what I was at the full-time job. So a year after I was let go, I was back to making just about what I was when I left my full-time job. And it's really helpful that I'm working on like iOS apps that have high value. So they have high costs. It's a yeah. little bit easier than doing something maybe let's like hourly. Were there any points during that year where you thought, boy, I should go back to get a job? No. No? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. I was so done. I <laughs> Being on my own was so refreshing and so just like, I can do whatever I want and it's working. I have not second-guessed myself in that decision ever. It's one of the few yeah. things I'm so confident about, like being on my own. I second-guess my business model almost every day. I second-guess all of my offerings, my workshop, my blog posts, Rails devs. I second-guess all of those every single day. But going on my own is the only decision that I'm like 100% confident with and probably will never change. What is it about being on your own that feels really great for you? One of the big things about being on my own and being an expert in a very specific space is that I can choose who I want to work with. And I can choose the people that are going to complement my skills and I can complement their skills the best. So if I have a potential client that's like, okay, we have an app and we want it done exactly this way. And I'm like, listen, that's not the best way to do an iOS app. You don't do a modal for this type of screen, or maybe that's supposed to be a different type of navigation. And they're like, no, we're doing it this way. I'm not going to work with you. If you're not going to value my opinion on an expert doing this for a decade at this point, you can find someone else to work with. Being able to choose that and offer complete expertise in a field is really empowering and it is really exciting and just like gets me so excited to start a day and be like, okay, what problem are we solving for these people? on my own terms. And I can choose that 
I want to work with this client for a retainer because it feels like a really good ongoing thing. Or, okay, they need an app really quick. Let's customize a one-month engagement. We'll go zero to App Store. We'll be launched in six weeks. I can customize those offerings. I can pivot as quickly as I want to because it's only myself. If I was a even an agency, that would be much harder. And yeah. being on my own and being my own boss, I said it a few times, but it's so empowering. And it's just this way to wake up and feel so excited about what I'm going to work on every day. And maybe what I'm working on isn't what's motivating me, but it's the idea that it's building me towards something that is motivating. So a really good example is like a client right now has this really janky flow with authentication and we're trying to like iron it out. And it's like the details suck. The code is nasty. <laughs> like we're trying to rework a ton of iOS code that's just like not working really well. And that's hard. But knowing that we're going to be able to get to a point where they're going to have a really clean code structure, the flow for onboarding and authentication is going to be really nice for the user. That's super motivating. And I'm able to influence that and tell them, yeah, let's do this as a push or instead of a pop or present instead of dismiss or let's do two-factor on a new screen after we've already said that their username and password is there. Like All of that stuff is just getting in the weeds about stuff that I'm excited about. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of what you're talking about is really the UX of the apps even beyond development, you're really mm-hmm. talking about design and user experience aspects. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the Turbo Native clients that I have come in with zero expectations or knowledge around iOS, mm-hmm. but a lot of ideas. And those ideas are good. And sometimes those ideas are just not in line with the human interface guidelines that Apple right. puts out, the HIG. Yeah. And I'm kind of there to educate them on, okay, that's how it works in Rails, but we don't really do that on iOS. Or yeah. we do it, but we do it slightly differently. A really common one is that we don't do H1s on iOS. We don't do a title of the screen at the top of the page. That goes in the nav bar on the native part. (laughs) So like a huge thing that I work with clients is finding a way to change their 300 views, their 300 show views to hide that H1 that will work for them forever and then displays correctly on iOS. And it's like, you don't get that when you work with Turbo Native for two weeks. You only get that with years of experience. And That is really fun for me to share that type of knowledge with folks. One question I was going, and this sounds like a good point to bring it in, is explain what is Turbo Native (laughs) is someone, a layperson who doesn't know. I've talked with you about a project that I work on. We have a native app and I think I want some Turbo Native stuff and I think I know what that means, but let me hear it from your perspective. Turbo Native is hybrid apps that don't suck. That's the quickest way I can explain it. You're rendering your mobile web views that are rendered from your Rails site inside of a native iOS app. So you have like a native tab bar across the top of the bottom. Maybe you click a link and it pushes a native screen. It feels like a native app, but all of the actual content is rendered HTML from your server. That means that you don't need to build every screen twice or three times for Android. You can just render your mobile web views. All of your business logic still lives on your Rails server. It enables companies like 37 Signals to launch Hey and Basecamp with a tiny dev team to millions of users because they're mostly working in Rails the whole time. It enables me with Rails devs to launch a website and a mobile app as the sole developer plus open source contributions. It's crazy powerful, but it's pretty simple because it's kind of just a glorified web view that you shove in the app store and have people download. Like what makes that different than just rendering a web page inside the app? Yeah, two big reasons. One is that it actually gets installed on the user's device. 
So they have that reminder that there's an app icon on their screen that they can click and open up. And there's a lot of studies that you can read up on about how folks are more likely to open an app than go to a website. It's a big push for apps. And yes, you can argue that folks could just add it to their home screen, like a mobile web app. I have never seen a single person have one of those on their device. So if you have one, please let me know. (laughs) And the second is that you have access to native APIs. So the big one is push notifications. It's something that you can't do on mobile web. There's APIs that are out there now that can starting to happen on desktop. But for mobile, there's no way to send a direct communication to a, a customer or a client outside of email or text. And this lets you have that little badge on the app, send a native push notification, deep link it somewhere into the app, essentially build an entire experience around them having the phone in the pocket and opening up your app instead of just being on a website or an email client. So that opens up the door for a ton of things. Push notification is just the tip of the iceberg. You can do native maps, access to the contact book. What is it? Routing, the machine learning frameworks that are all on the device. It's all iOS code at the end of the day. So you have access to anything that Apple releases. And you're not held down by the framework maintainers kind of adding the interoperability between those two. You're not abstracted from iOS. You're writing iOS code, but you're rendering Rails content. So it's a big difference. As a Rails developer, how difficult would it be for me to get a Hello World Turbo Native app going? I've never wrote any iOS code. Sadly, pretty difficult. <laughs> I don't doubt <laughs> it. There's not a, like a Rails tutorial for this. Huh? <laughs> yeah, the mode is definitely. So I've been doing some things to make it easier. But right now, you definitely need to know iOS. You cannot just like assume to only know Rails and have an iOS app in the App Store. You're going to have a bad time. So... I was recently added as a maintainer of the Turbo Native repo. So very excited to get in Ooh, there and start working so. with the folks. Yeah, thanks. And actually start making it easier for folks because there's a lot of boilerplate you still need. But you still need to know iOS. You still have to have Xcode downloaded on your machine. You still have to have a Mac. There's a lot of bars to jump over, hoops to jump through. But I'm trying to make it easier right now two ways. One is there's the Jumpstart Pro iOS template, mm-hmm. which is like 200 bucks a year. And if you're using Jumpstart Rails... It just works seamlessly. You just download it, you run the app, and you have native navigation, native tab bars, push notifications, all wired up, authentication, and you can configure a lot from the Rails server, which is really cool. You like spit out a JSON file that sets your tabs across the bottom. It works really well if you're using Jumpstart Rails and you kind of don't want to break the mold. You want to just do a template almost. But if you're looking to do something more custom and dive into native APIs, you do need that iOS experience. And for that, I'm doing the workshop. I'm hoping to announce my next version pretty soon, where we're going to spend three hours together, maybe even four. I might extend it. And the first third of it, the first quarter of it, is going to be on iOS. It's going to be like, I don't know how to use Xcode. I don't know what the difference is between an optional and try with a bang on it or whatever. Let's dive into iOS. Let's get that baseline skill level so you can have enough to be dangerous writing your Turbo Native code. And then we're going to dive into the actual framework. So between those two things, cleaning up the repo, getting the demo app working a lot easier, and just really more documentation, more blog posts, more videos on it, I'm hoping that we can kind of lower that bar to entry and make it so that you only have to have a Mac. That's the goal. But you're always going to have to have a Mac and Xcode. But maybe you don't have to know a lot of iOS. Maybe you have a template that is completely configurable from the server. Stuff like that is really exciting to me. As one of the only Turbo developers out there, you're known to be focused at this intersection of Rails and iOS. 
Do you see any other interesting niches or specialties in the Rails world that could be filled by indie devs? I think that Hotwire is bringing a ton of opportunity for that right now. There's been a ton of just resurgence on exciting front ends built in pure Rails. And in pure Rails, I don't mean zero JavaScript. I mean, no other front end framework other than Hotwire. And it's really exciting to see folks that are doing very interactive screens and pages and apps that feel in a good way, single page appy without having the bloat of a full-on React app. And then looking at the code and realizing that most of it is actually Ruby with a little bit of stimulus controllers. And that's super exciting. And I think that's a really great place right now for someone to differentiate themselves and being an expert in this hotwire. And a lot of people are already doing that. So it's not that it's a crowded market, but it's proving that it's viable. I'm interested in seeing folks that have React or Vue or what have you knowledge and being able to convert Rails API apps that have JavaScript front ends to Hotwire. I think that could be a crazy lucrative niche in that you're saying, hey, you have a React front end, but you don't want React anymore because you have Rails developers. Let's work together, consult with me. I'll help you migrate that off of it and into Hotwire and put all your code and all your business logic back in the Rails side where it belongs. That could be really interesting. And I think that there's opportunity for that because folks are getting excited about Rails again, and they're not as excited about the front end mess of JavaScript frameworks. So it could be fun. And worst case, you're learning a really cool skill in Hotwire, which is around to stay. So let's go back to when you were doing consulting, right? You're doing that for how long were you consulting before you got the idea to do Rails devs? Rails Dev started October of 2020. This is 2023. So 2021. Oh, God, that's crazy. I was working at the time I was in that peak of the wave that we talked about earlier of having not enough clients or too many clients. And I had way too many potential clients, I should say. And this was when I was branching out a little bit more into more general Rails consulting. I was doing upgrades. I was doing PR review. I was doing mentoring. So I had a broader offering than just Turbo Native. But I had like five people that wanted to work with me and slots for two. But I also saw a lot of people on Twitter that were like trying to find their first client or trying to find their third because their second one just let them go or whatever reason, or they churned or what have you. I started collecting a list with everyone's permission on Google Sheets of people who were looking for work. And I emailed that to the five people that I was potentially going to work with. And two of them hired someone off the list in a week or in like two weeks or something. I was like, oh, wow. Holy crap, I just connected part-time jobs from Twitter and a Google Sheet. This is insane. One of them was actually a good friend of mine. Still is a good friend of mine from New York. Sent me a pizza in the mail, like a frozen pizza from Emmy Squared. (laughs) (laughs) So that was super exciting to say thank you. But I I got that pizza and we were like, we're heating it up in the oven. And I was like, there's something here. There is something that if I can connect with such low technology stack, (laughs) Google Sheets and an email, right? I can do something here. And I think that next Monday, I took a one-week pause and was like, okay, let's try something. Of course, register a domain first, because that's what you do (laughs) when you have a business idea. Registered RailsDevs.io and started hacking away on a directory of Rails developers. That was the initial goal. It was supposed to be a really fun side project of listing out developer profiles where they could add kind of like their LinkedIn page, but focused 100% on Rails, focused 100% on freelancers and when they could start working. I pushed up Heroku and there was like an issue going on. So I tweeted about it and Chris Oliver helped me fix it on Twitter. 
and then added his profile after it was fixed before I really officially launched and then tweeted about it. (laughs) And on day one, I think I had like 50 developers sign up for the platform. And I was like, oh, crap, it's real. <laughs> like It's happening. I hadn't even officially launched it or announced it yet. And there were 50 people with their profile on this site. And things kind of snowballed from there. That was October. So before the end of December, I had a business that was asking me to hire folks on it and wanted something more official than just a link to their email address because they mm-hmm. felt kind of shady. They wanted something more official than just an email from the developer. What does that mean? Sorry, let me take a step back. So the profile page had a big button that said, hire me. You click that link and it was a mail to link to their email address. Mm -hmm. That to a business is not any better than a cold email. It's just an email. There's no validity behind it. It's a recruiter emailing you about a job. How many of those do we get every week? How many of those LinkedIn spam messages do we get? I wasn't solving a problem with this. I was just exasperating the problem of recruiter spam effectively. Good intentioned recruiter spam, but still recruiter spam at the end of the day from the point of view of the developer. They had no confidence that they would receive a reply from a cold email without something else backing it. That's interesting. They wanted intro. They wanted a personal connection. They wanted something that was on a trusted platform was where we ended up after talking to this business. I was like, okay, let's build out messaging, in-app messaging. I'll build it out for you. It'll be a hundred bucks a month. And if it doesn't work, it's not even a subscription. It was just a hundred bucks for like a month of access. Built out the messaging. They hired someone within like four days, wow. <laughs> five days or something crazy. Successfully churned because they didn't have need anymore. Mm-hmm. And January of last year was where I was like, okay, now I've made a dent in a way that I've made my first dollar. Can I make this a business? And then very quickly that became more fleshed out messaging, you know, email notifications, inbound, you can reply to the email and it goes right to their inbox, unread notifications, hiring fees, increasing prices, increasing pricing is again, white glove service, like all of these features that have been added on and added on based off of really that first person DMing me on Twitter and saying, can I pay for this? So that's pretty amazing because I think a lot of us that are doing consulting, we're looking at different business ideas and side projects and we're trying to Decide how much time we want to spend on this, how much effort do we want to put into it. In one year, you've turned it into a pretty amazing business. Yeah, I, I checked this morning. It's 180K in revenue since launch. I was going to That's ask rad. if you think you had shared before and you were being open with your revenue. So, Oh, yeah. Slash open. You can see everything. Month <laughs> yeah, to month breakdown, awesome. expenses. I'm sharing as much as I possibly can. The only thing I'm not sharing really is who's getting hired and who's hiring for privacy concerns. Sure. But... Codebase is open source. Metrics are open source. Fathom is public for me. GitHub discussions are where I'm deciding most of the next features or folks can suggest features. This morning, someone suggested a Mastodon link and submitted a pull request and we had it merged in within like four hours. And now you can add your Mastodon link to your profile. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. There's no world where I wouldn't want that on Rails Dev's profile. Were you planning on doing that sort of in the open thing at the start? Is that kind of like you as a person, or did you see this in particular business as being one that was well suited to that? I consider myself an oversharer, which I think <laughs> lines up well with building in public. I love to talk about how much money people make and how much I make because I think that increasing transparency around that brings down like all the barriers and makes people realize what it really costs and what it really means to make own a business and be a solopreneur. So I think that my personality lines up with that really well. 
Rails devs as a business being open source has received a lot of questionable pushback. Many folks are like, how could you possibly open source this? Someone's going to copy you and make their own version. And I say, yeah, and here are five folks that have done that successfully. And I send them links to all five websites that are profitable based on <laughs> Rails devs clones. I want that to happen. I yeah. want that to happen because if they're going to fork the repo, they're not going to rewrite it in Elixir or PHP or Rust or whatever. It's going to be Rails. And I don't care if it's closed source even. That is going to be a new Rails project in the ecosystem that is ideally profitable. And that might mean a new Rails developer or a new team of Rails developers or someone getting hired to work on that. I got a DM this morning of someone who was hired via Rails devs as a part-time gig to fork Rails devs into being a new business model. I was like, that's the dream. That's the dream. It's a full circle. I'm creating work for people on the platform that hires them. I can't ask for anything better. But to answer your question directly, like, was it always the plan for Rails devs? And do I see it being a good business model to be open source? No, I think it's kind of a weird idea. I'm kind of just playing with it. But I am very glad I made the decision to do that because I think it is what is unique about Rails devs and it gives me opportunity to share everything. I can explain a bug and link to a PR or link to the line of code that's causing the bug. There are not many SaaSs or businesses that can do that level of transparency. And I love that. And then I can have people respond to me and say, oh, you should try this. And I'm like, cool, want to open a PR? And they say yes. And boom, the bug is fixed. And I only, all I had to do was tweet about it. And now awareness is building on Twitter. There's a conversation happening. There's a new developer into the ecosystem. And sometimes it's their first open source contribution, which is even more amazing. There's 85, 90 developers that have contributed to the Rails devs code base right now. 20 of them, their first open source contribution ever was to Rails devs. That's, That's cool. huge. Yeah. That's 20 new developers in the ecosystem that are now doing open source software development and they're doing it in Rails. That's really cool. That's why I'm never going to close source this thing. When I was getting started in Rails, there was like a Rails application I was tasked with building. And the thing that helps me the most is looking at other examples. But in the Ruby ecosystem, when you're looking for open source code, a lot of times it's libraries, mm-hmm. not apps, not app mm-hmm. code. And what I needed was app examples. And so I think less everything they had an app open source. It was like a social network and it had so much of the stuff that I needed. And I dove into that and read it over and over again. Yeah, And that really helped me. And I feel like more SaaS businesses and apps that open source their Ruby and Rails code, that really helps. If you want to build Rails apps, you need to read Rails app code. And if you're working yep. by yourself, if you're indie, then you don't get the benefit of working in a company's repo where there are a lot of other senior devs that have built this thing over years. So the only place you can go is open source. So I feel like that's a huge need. And I love that. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, especially on the like indie dev, there's nowhere to look and everything's a library. That was the original reason why I made Rails devs open source was if I want to look at a business that is running in the real world, doesn't have to be profitable, but has to be a business. I have like two options. I can look at the Discord backend code base that's written mm. in Rails that is huge, as it should be, or I can look at like Forum, also yeah. pretty huge. And there wasn't anything really in the middle there where it's like bigger than a toy project or bigger than this has never been deployed to production and smaller than a thousand models, a thousand controllers. Mm-hmm. Like Rails devs will probably never get that big. And if it does, an enterprise app at that point. You know what I mean? Like it's a different, it's a totally different beast. 
But right now where it is, it's approachable for both devs new to Rails and devs that are new to open source. You can kind of get in there and see how things work without having to wade through three, four or five layers of abstractions. I'd like to ask you about when you were thinking about creating Rails devs, did you know what you didn't know kind of thing? Because you built a marketplace. You've admitted that it's hard to build a marketplace. And I know like when I started out on my own, if I'd have known then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have done it. But you know, here you are, you got to make it work. Did you consider a lot of that? So I already knew not to create a marketplace. <laughs> I had already done that twice and failed. This is just going to be my third marketplace attempt, to be honest. I don't know. I have a glutton for pain there in that I know that marketplaces are inherently difficult. I have two failed business models that never took off, really. One made $50 total. One never made it to production. And I knew that it was hard to do a marketplace, which is why this started off as that directory model. I was like, there's no business model. It's a directory. The fact that it turned into a business was way more of the first customer asking me for those features. When you looked around and you could see there's Mm, obviously lots of job boards out there. Did you battle with how can I make this work when there's another solution on the shelf? I am a big fan of niching down whatever you want to call it. You can see that by everything that I talk about is like super in the weeds. Turbo Native is a subset of iOS development, a subset of Rails development, a subset of development in general. Like I want to go as tiny and as small as audience as possible. I don't really look at Hired or Indeed as competitors in the space because they offer so many more things besides Rails developers. Yeah, you could probably find a Rails developer on there and probably find a great one. But those to me are generic places to find talent. Rails devs is a place to find great Rails developers. And that's the market that I want to capture. And yeah, it's way smaller. And it's probably the right size for a solo business, though. Lifestyle business gets a bad name, but that's what this is to me. This is part of my solopreneurship, not the business that I kind of am the CEO of or CTO of and like let run on its own. I don't want that. Not here. Lifestyle businesses. Yeah. We, not, we promote a, not a bad thing here. Yeah. Good, good name cool. on it. Yeah. Maybe like a few months before you launch Rails Devs, I had tried to do something similar. It just tanked. It didn't do anything. And then Rails Devs came out and I learned several key lessons. I needed to learn how to use Twitter. I was never good at building and sharing, building and talking, or making friends, building relationships, and sharing interesting stuff for other people. I think that really, for me, kicked me off into like, okay, I need to figure this out. If I want to keep making side projects and I eventually want to have one do well, I need to Mm -hmm. figure that out. That's like a big piece. And watching how that worked for you like finally sold me on that. Yeah. I think a lot of things that I'm doing not on purpose are what are working. It's sharing what I'm excited about. It's posting questions and problems that I'm running into and being able to say, this line of code's breaking, or here's the public honey badger report. Can anyone help me? Being genuinely curious about stuff. And that is, I think, better than any Twitter course you'll find on how to build a following or what have you, because it's just being a genuine human in a community. I like to think about Twitter as we're at RailsConf and we're all sitting around the different tables on our machines, hacking on our own stuff. Mm -hmm. What would I stand up and scream to that group? What would I stand up and scream, hey, can someone help me with X, Y, and Z? Sure. Would I scream, hey, you should sign up for my website and you know, pay me? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. And I kind of put that through a filter every time I go to tweet something. Oh, that's a great idea. I like that. I like, I like that. that rubric. That's good. I wanted to ask, what is the goal for Rails devs? Is it going to 
eventually eat up your consulting business? You got to spend a hundred percent of your time on Rails devs, or how are you going to balance that out? Right now, I work four days a week. Uh, I don't work on Fridays. It's family day, life Fantastic. stuff day. Tuesdays are dedicated to email. If that oh, gives man, you a yeah. good sense of how much <laughs> communication I'm doing these days, whether that's pitching new clients or doing outreach for clients, but it's mostly following up with businesses and developers on Rails devs on Tuesdays. And I have, you know, elaborate notion templates that help me track where everyone is in the process and stuff, but no real CRM yet. Who knows how long that'll take. But I don't know if Rails devs will ever be my quote full-time gig. I think I could turn it into that if I wanted to. It's already making enough money and enough profit to be a sizable salary that I could scale it. But I get bored really quickly. I'll be honest. I mean, I jump around to the new shiny really fast. And I worry personally that if I went all in on Rails devs, that it would kind of burn out and fizzle in about a year because I'm not doing other stuff. And right now I have this balance of doing Turbo Native and doing Rails devs, which are similar, but not the same. One is very much education and writing code. And one is very much being a business owner and being a founder. And they complement each other, but they're very different skill sets. And they tease my brain in different ways. And I think I'll always need something like that to feel the yin and yang of being indie and being motivated every day when I wake up. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, yeah, same. I get to manage like two or three different businesses in my work. And yep. it's really awesome to work with different people work on different teams, work on different problems, different industry. So it makes it really interesting. I think that's one of the things that I need the most from the way I do work is like one of the hardest aspects of thinking about if I ever had to go back to a regular full-time job is having one role, one area of focus, and not being able to jump these. I can't have a lot of context, but I need a couple. I need at least two, maybe three. And be able to kind of switch between those to keep myself excited and energized. And, you know, when you get blocked on one, switch to the other, that sort of thing. I need that. I'm getting there a lot of other devs out there that feel that. And this is a way to do it. This is Mm -hmm. a way. It's not the easiest way, but it is a way. And it can be a really good way. I agree. I think that having two, three contexts, context is a great word too, because it's not a product, it's not a feature, it's not an offering, it's not a service. It's a context to be in a mind state. Having two or three of those is what keeps indie devs sane in my mind. I know that there's a lot of people that can focus all in on one thing and do that for decades. That's not me. Yeah. Doesn't sound like it's you two either. (laughs) More power to them that they can focus on that, but I can't. I could for a year or two and I know I would burn out. So having this opportunity, if you dissect my Twitter, you'll notice that I go in waves of getting really deep into Turbo Native for like a two month, three month span and less Rails devs, and then I'll flip-flop. And I'll be talking all about Rails devs for two to three months because I have a new feature coming up or I'm excited. And then I'll flip-flop back again. And you don't probably notice it if you're not looking at every single one of my tweets and tracking it somewhere. But for me, mm-hmm. I notice it in the 2020, like hindsight, right? Looking at how I'm tweeting about things and realizing where my interest is lying. Yeah. And just it being further proof that I can never go back to a full-time job. I have <laughs> made myself unhirable, <laughs> as I'm sure both of you have too. If you look back over the last two or three years, can you speak to any big risks that you had to take that you weren't sure about at the time, but that ultimately paid off? Because that's one of the hardest parts about being an indie dev is like knowing when you've got this thing that you might just have to jump for and then knowing how to gauge the risk level and then how to pull the trigger on it. I feel like I haven't taken 
big risks with my independent business. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've reduced the risk for decisions as much as possible so that if they do fail, it's okay still. And one of the key aspects of that is that I timebox all of my projects to three to six months. (laughs) And if they don't make a dollar in three to six months, I have to abandon them for six months. Interesting. Before I come back to them. And that gives me time to rethink it. But most importantly, it gives me time to reprioritize if I'm still interested in it in six months. If I work on something for six months straight, launch it to crickets, build it in public, no one is interested. I get zero feedback. I get no paying customers, most importantly. Take a pause. If I come back in six months and I'm really excited to start again, yeah, I'll give it another go. But that rarely happens. Six months off of something, you're usually over it. Or at least I am. And I've done that with multiple projects. I've launched two marketplaces that have totally failed. Let them sit for six months and came back and shut down the Heroku server because I was like, this is done. Kept the code, of course. You know, it's fun to look at, but have shut down the business, air quotes, business. And I think that doing that has enabled me to keep my risk level really low. Rails devs, as I talked about, built up organically and was never a big jump. The consulting business I built up from that one client and slowly got back to my income level of a full-time job. I never had to really make a risk jump. My biggest risk was probably when I got let go and I didn't even make that decision. I don't know. Now I'm a different person, right? I have a wife and I have a kid and it was a year and a half and like I can make even less riskier decisions. So that answer is going to get more and more boring as I get older. (laughs) (laughs) I think people overestimate the risk a lot of times that you need to take. I've heard other people talk about it. There's lots of opportunities out there and you don't have to always go all in. You can start small and bootstrap and build it up. You know, if you fail, then you haven't lost much. And if it succeeds, then you just keep moving forward. Yeah, totally. Like I said, the marketplace invested a lot of time into it, did like Y Combinator startup school, went pretty deep into it, fell apart during the pandemic when the pandemic started because it was an in-person thing. And then right off of that, I built Mugshot Bot, which was a auto-generating tool for social media images from blog posts. Worked on it for, I think, about a year and was kind of over it and was like, all right, I got to sell this. And took a six-month pause and put it on microacquire and then sold it for like enough money to bootstrap Rails devs for the first month or so. It wasn't a life-changing amount of money by any means. It was at like 200 MRR, but it was enough to at least give me a tiny bit of cushion to invest into Rails devs. And I think that's like the best outcome of these solo projects as an indie developer, especially in Rails, where you can spin up something really fast, test the market really quickly, and then decide if you're still interested in it. Because if you're not, and you can sell it for enough money to bootstrap your next idea, that's not a bad cycle to be in, in my mind. So you're definitely one of the people I kind of look up to on Twitter and just how you approach interactions with the community. If Twitter shut down tomorrow, how would that shift your strategy and efforts around connecting to the community, promoting your own work, finding opportunities, things like that? I have a strategy right now. I don't have a solution. Right now, if Twitter shut down tomorrow or Twitter deactivated my account, the best I can do is the 2,700 people on the Hotwire newsletter. And they're looking for something very specific, Hotwire Dev News. I can sneak in a link in there every month or so. I can throw in a little promotion about stuff, about a blog post that I wrote if it's relevant. But I can't really talk about Rails devs every month. One of the things that I've been trying to doing, and if you've seen the polls I've been doing recently, I'm trying to start this is a world exclusive here, unannounced. Um, clickbait. <laughs> a newsletter on me building businesses. 
and it's not Hotwire. It's Rails related. It's very similar to the target audience of this podcast, actually, where it's indie Rails developers building solo businesses, solopreneur. I don't know what the right marketing term is for it yet, but it's follow Joe's journey as he builds Rails devs, as he consults with Turbo Native clients, as he learns new things. And I want to start that newsletter before Twitter blows up. That's yeah. my goal. And I'm trying to figure out how I can manage two newsletters. The Hotwire Dev newsletter is not on autopilot by any means. I still have to read every single one of those articles. I have 25 tabs open right now that I need to read next week and then summarize the ones that are the best to include in the newsletter. It's not a small amount of work. And I don't get paid for that. I tried sponsorships and it didn't work Mm -hmm. for me. So what I do is I throw a little promotion in there every month about something that I'm working on. But I want somewhere where I can talk completely unabashedly about my work and dive really into the details about my work. And that to me would be a newsletter because my blog is kind of focused on Turbo Native and Rails development. It's less about the building of businesses behind the scenes stuff right now. And I want that newsletter to be somewhere where folks can go to get really the inside scoop. The, okay, Joe wrote a tweet about something, but here's like four paragraphs on it in a newsletter. And what I'm trying to figure out now Is this a newsletter that is really a regurgitation of a blog post? I have a slash newsletter on my website and I publish it there every month like I do the Hotwired newsletter. Or is this a paid Substack? That's the big decision that I'm trying to figure out. Are there enough people out there that would want to pay to listen to me talk, you know, type, to make this another revenue stream? Or is this really a way for me to talk about all this stuff and is now a top of the funnel lead for Rails devs and my consulting business? I'll be frank. We're all business owners here. We're all solopreneurs. Everything we do should have a business goal at the end of it. And maybe that is just to learn and to have fun. But like, I'm not going to start another newsletter with no real business goal at the end of it, because it would just take away time from the things that are helping me survive. (laughs) So it has to be paid or it has to lead me to new clients and figuring out which market I want to target there. We'll decide what I want to do with it. Thanks for sharing that. That's intriguing and definitely part of what I'm thinking about in terms of my strategy and from a marketing perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what it is, right? It's all marketing. It's all it's yeah. indie marketing, which is was just talking about your stuff, which is mm-hmm. what we're good at. But yeah, if anyone has like feedback or questions about it or wants to just talk more with me, please reach out. There'll be my email address straight up in the show notes. Yeah, you can just send me an email or DM me on Twitter. I'm open to whatever. Yeah, we'll be sure to link all that up. All right, Joe. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. You're so well spoken, and we just really enjoyed hearing about your journey your decisions that you have to make and what's coming next for you. So before we head out, though, let us know what's going on this coming year for you. Are you going to be seen at any conferences? Are you doing workshops? What do you got planned? I've submitted five proposals for RailsConf. (laughs) That's awesome. One of them is, you know, around Turbo Native, of course. One of them is a workshop. One of them is around Rails devs. One's around building open source apps. One's around building in public. Kind of just like covering all my bases, oh, right? Yeah. Upcoming, I have a workshop coming up, date TBD for Turbo Native. I'm hoping that is still going to be Q1. I know I'm running out of time right now, but I'm hoping that is happening in the next like 30, 60 days. What's the audience? So that would be folks who want to do Turbo Native, but don't know Turbo Native at all and don't know iOS at all. So it's like zero to, you know, MVP in terms of Turbo Native, like a three to four hour workshop or something. And goals-wise, great question. I have one goal for Rails devs, and I have one personal goal this year. My goal for Rails devs is to get a developer placed 
every single month of the year. Nice. If I can place 12 developers to a full-time job, Rails devs will be killing it in terms of both revenue and in people I've helped. It's an attainable goal, but I have to work hard for it. My strategy to get there is to get more businesses on the platform. So if you're listening to this and your company is hiring Rails developers, reach out, check out railsdevs.com. Would love to have you on board. Would love to help you hire. But that's the bottleneck right now. There are a thousand developers on the website, thousand developers, but there are only a handful of businesses that are hiring. That's not a good ratio. And getting more businesses will get more developers hired. So that's my goal for Rails devs. And my goal for myself is to be more intentional with my time. I wrote a whole blog post about this the 1st of January that's on my blog about how I had a lot of burnout at the end of last year in just like being on my computer all day, but not feeling accomplished, which Mm -hmm. is really hard as a solopreneur. Like you want to work more, you're excited to work more, but I would get up at whatever time at night and be like, what did I do today? Because I was just bouncing around all over the place. So I have these really concrete rules for like, you know, tracking what I need to work on every day in this notebook, Mm -hmm. logging every second of time that I'm on my computer to make sure it's accounted for. Going on Twitter way less to doom scroll and more about creating and responding to people. And I could go on about this for hours and I don't want to bore people with this, but there's more in the blog post if you want to get into it. The goal is to be more intentional with my time. And that applies to both businesses and online and outside of the computer stuff. If folks want to dive into this, hear more, railsdevs.com. Two S's there, yeah, railsdevs.com. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Mazzalotti, and I blog on Mazzalotti.com. Twitter is probably the best spot. You can find all the links to my website and Rails devs and also my newsletter and stuff. If you heard this and you want to chat more, always open to chat with fellow solopreneurs or Rails devs. Or if you're excited and just want to have a friend, definitely send me an email or a DM and I would love to catch up. Yeah, I can only echo that. I reached out to Joe a while back and he was just right on the spot, responded, very helpful to my situation. So... I appreciate that. Glad to hear it. Thanks for the uh, testimonial for me being a person. (laughs) Um, But this is awesome. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed this. This has been a blast. I'm very excited to hear this when it comes out and to see this podcast grow. I'm very invested in the space, obviously, and looking forward to seeing it expand and reach more of those indie developers, especially the Rails ones. All right. Thanks, Joe. 